as we close out Deuteronomy for a few weeks, we get ready to move into a series thinking about generosity with our lives. And to aid you in this series, we have a free book that is available for you in the parlor. We gave out about 400 last week, which means we probably got a thousand more. There's plenty for you to take one, and there's a devotional reading for each day in the next four weeks. This is the 25th um, chapter of Deuteronomy, beginning in verse 17. Remember what the the Malachites did to you on your way out of Egypt, how they met you on your journey and attacked all those who were lagging behind because they had no fear of God. So when you are given rest from all of your enemies in the land that the Lord your God is giving you to possess as an inheritance, you are to blot out the, the name of Malachek under heaven. You do not forget. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Be seated, please. You are to blot out the name of Amalek under heaven. Do not forget. Those words seem a little bit harsh. But it's obvious that God took it seriously because if you look at 1 Samuel 15, when they were given rest from their enemies, they had a king named Saul, uh, that one of the things God asked Saul to do was to go after the Amalekites. And Saul did this to an extent, but didn't do completely what God asked him to do. uh, Saul spared the king of the Amalekites and took some of the spoils uh, of war from the Amalekites. And as Samuel tells us, Saul ended up losing his entire crown, his reign, over this failure to do what God had said. God was serious about eliminating the Amalekites, which raises the question, what's so bad about the Amalekites? Why was God so harsh and so determined on this matter? Well, apparently what happened, if you look in the book of Exodus, is when the people of Israel escaped from Egypt, they crossed the Red Sea, There were thousands and thousands and thousands of them. And if you've ever uh, been with a a youth group or any kind of group and you're you're walking or hiking somewhere, you realize that people get strung out um, pretty quickly. And at the back of the line were those who couldn't keep up, the elderly, those who were infirm in some way, mothers who were still nursing their children, and, and other people who were weak. And apparently what happened is the Amalekites swooped down knocked off a number of them and took others into slavery. They preyed on the weak, the vulnerable, and the helpless. Now, the reports out of Libya are that their own dictator is turning on his own civilians who are vulnerable and defenseless. And you know how you feel in your heart about that. Or maybe you know how you feel in your heart about the Somali pirates who who captured four Americans traveling around the world to distribute Bibles. And those four Americans were held hostage and then, of course, uh, lost their life about a month ago. You're probably aware that the Somali pirates have about 650 prisoners or hostages to this very day. Now, some people say in their defense that these pirates started out in an effort to defend the fishing territory, the fishing waters off their coast. Maybe that's so, but I assure you the Amalekites were doing no such thing. They were taking plain and simple advantage of the weak and the weary when they swooped down and preyed upon the vulnerable. What Moses was told um, to say about this from God is they had no fear of God. 
And what that meant was not that they maybe didn't know the God of the universe. It meant that they didn't respect any God anywhere on the planet if you do something as reprehensible as prey on the weak and the vulnerable. And so God makes a note of that and, and will come after the Amalekites because they did not hear the cry of the needy and in, instead inflicted pain upon them. God will deal with that in God's own way and time. And in fact, God did. But if you look through the Scriptures, God is doing that. God has a case against those who will not defend the weak, the vulnerable, and the needy. starts with Pharaoh. Pharaoh, king of Egypt, enslaves the Jews and then uh, forces them to work, make bricks uh, without straw. You recall the story. The Egyptians are hard, are, are hard taskmasters. They, they, they press uh, their case. They beat the weak and the vulnerable Jews. And finally, God decides to do something about it. A series of plagues come upon Egypt. You remember the final plague is the death of the firstborn, and Pharaoh's own house is affected. His own son dies because he has ignored the cries of the weak, the needy, and the vulnerable. A friend of mine has done some research on this, and I didn't know this, but in the pantheon of Egyptian gods, uh, Pharaoh was considered one of the gods. But in the pantheon, one of the qualifications in their myths was that the, the uh, gods were always the firstborn. And so when the plague comes upon Pharaoh's house and his firstborn son dies, but he's still alive, what God has done is expose Pharaoh to the entire nation of Egypt by their own rules, proving that he's a myth, that he's not real, he's not even a firstborn, or he'd be dead with everybody else. So what God does is not only attack Pharaoh's family, but Pharaoh's own reputation because he's not heard the cry of the needy. But God's no easier on his own people. When they get set up in their own country and they began to neglect uh, what God is calling them to do to care for the weak and the vulnerable, God sends a prophet Isaiah who, uh, and Amos and Jeremiah. And Amos's cry in chapter 5 is, Let justice roll down like a mighty stream. Isaiah's cry in Isaiah 58 is, Is this not the fast I require, says God? Not that you not eat or that you bring me gifts, but rather that you care for the needy, that you loosen the bonds of slavery, and that you take care of the oppressed. God's very clear about that. And as a result, Israel, because of this and other sins, gets carted off into slavery, first by the Assyrians, later by the Babylonians. But the Babylonians, who are God's tool to punish God's people, they oppress God's people and seem to get great pleasure out of it. And according to the prophet Jeremiah, God's not going to tolerate that very long. And sure enough, the Persians come along and conquer the Babylonians. Then you go forward several hundred years and another group of people come to oppress the weak and the vulnerable. They are the Roman Empire. And they oppress the Jews in such a way that in 70 AD, the Jews finally revolt against the Romans. And the Romans put down this revolt with extreme prejudice. And the temple of God is, is torn down brick by brick. And as you probably know, the Roman Colosseum was built by the plunder and the riches from the Jewish temple that went back to Rome. And it wasn't enough that the Jews were attacked uh, in their weak and vulnerable state. About a decade later, the emperor Domitian, AD to 85, starts to go after the weak and vulnerable Christians in Asia Minor. And as hundreds of thousands of Christians die in, in modern-day Turkey at the hands of the Roman dictator... And God's response to this is prophesied in Revelation when you read that one day Babylon, in this case, a.k.a. Rome, will fall. And in a few centuries, indeed, that happened. 
God takes this business of, of, of oppressing the weak and the vulnerable with extreme seriousness all the way through history. And the Amalekites came to represent that. Just to show you how they would represent it, you go to the story of Esther in the Bible. Remember the story of Esther? Uh, Esther uh, becomes queen of Persia by uh, some, a wonderful accident. Uh, she's a Jew, but that's hidden from the king's knowledge. Uh, but Haman uh, decides on a plan to exterminate the Jews. And he's just going to sort of slide it under the nose of the emperor and, and have him sign an order that he probably doesn't even realize what he's signing that will exterminate all the Jews there in, in Persia. Well, Haman's plot is foiled by um, Esther's uncle Mordecai and by Esther's own bravery, willing to risk her life and her crown. But do you know what Haman was, what he was called? He was called an Agagite. And if you go back to 1 Samuel 15, you find that the Agagite heir or the, the um, ancestor of, of the Agagites is King Ahag, Agag, excuse me, Agag, who is an Amalekite. It seems that even the Amalekites are extinguished. They're still trying to oppress the vulnerable. And so it's no surprise that Haman is really an Amalekite still living and thriving in Persia. They come to represent all of the efforts to oppress the weak and the vulnerable. And each time, God will meet their oppression with a very strong response. One of the interesting things that the rabbis would say is they noted uh, that the word they met you out on the road when you were escaping Egypt could also uh, be interpreted they cooled you on the road, which isn't they like cooled you off and refreshed you, but it's like in a sense they sort of dumped uh, ice water on your parade and, and, they, and they cooled your ardor or your passion that you had for God. So the rabbis, by Jesus' day, would also say that uh, Amalekites not only oppressed people, but in their oppression of the poor, they made the poor doubt the existence of God and doubt the care of God. And that's part of the problem with not helping the poor and leaving them poor is they doubt that there's a God who cares for them. And the whole universe is built on the notion of a God who cares. And so Amalekites come in all shapes and sizes and they aren't, we find out, even uh, aren't necessarily limited to those who actively oppress the weak and vulnerable, but maybe those who passively ignore the weak and the vulnerable join the ranks of the Amalekites. And so we're warned that if we cause anyone to doubt the love of God by leaving them in their very difficult circumstances, we are, in a sense, behaving as the Amalekites. Uh, one story that may illustrate this comes from Africa. There was an African child who became a Christian. His non-Christian friend said, well, why did you do that? Your new God hasn't given you any shoes for your feet. And his response was, yes, God has told people to bring me shoes, but they haven't heard him yet. And it reminds us that all of us who do have shoes, who do have resources, we are passively Amalekites if we're not involved actively in caring for those who are weak and vulnerable. But it is very strange that God would say, blot out their name, but don't forget. seems like if you're going to blot out their name, you'd want to forget. What's going on here? Well, one helpful interpretation is simply this, and I think Texans get it maybe better than anybody else. Uh, two weeks ago, we celebrated the 175th anniversary of the Alamo, and we teach our kids the phrase, remember the Alamo. But our kids don't go gunning for Santana's descendants. They don't go look to cross the border or send troops into Mexico. 
We know that to remember the Alamo is to remember the courage, remember the sacrifice, remember the lessons that are taught. In the same way, my father's generation learned, remember Pearl Harbor. But it doesn't mean that my father is calling this day for, for armies to go uh, across the sea and attack the Japanese. In fact, many Americans will open their hearts and pocketbooks this week to help the Japanese in the face of the earthquake. It means remember the lessons and remember the heroism. Remember what we can learn. And in the same way, remember the Amalekites, say some scholars, is not uh, that once the Amalekites are eliminated uh, that we're finished, but rather there are lessons to be learned. And to me, the lessons are these. God has special dealings with those who will oppress the weak and the vulnerable. God will take care of them in ways that aren't very nice. And it reminds me that any time I see the weak and the vulnerable and I do not go to help them, that I have become a modern-day Amalekite. 